You are listening to an audio from Redemption City Church. If you would like to explore more resources or donate to this ministry, go to www.visitredemptioncc.com. Hi guys, it's Brandon, and you're about to listen to a sermon exhortation from Redemption City Church. So no matter who you are, we are really excited that you have made the radical resolve to give the next hour or so to God. And our one ask is that you would take this sermon and that you would test everything by the Word of God, holding fast to everything that's profitable to set your life up for success so that you can be all that God has called you to be. And we believe that because Scripture tells us so in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 21. Now, during this COVID-19 season of the pandemic, many of us are not gathering regularly in person for our church experience. And maybe you are in between churches all together. And so whether you are local or you are far off in another state, we really do hope that this word today is encouraging and transformative and redemptive and ultimately spurs you on to be more like Jesus. And so thank you for gathering. Lean into all that God has for you. Let's go. Let's grow. Grace and peace. Well, good morning, Redemption City Church. It's Pastor Brandon, and I'm super excited to bring the Word of God this morning. It's been a really, really long time, so I haven't said this in a while. Here we go. Ready? If you have your Bibles, and I really hope you do, I want you to open them to Ephesians chapter 4, verse 17, and we're going to jump in there in just a little bit as we continue forward in our Ephesians series titled Our Story into God's Story. I want to remind everyone that this series is all about discovering who we are and what we've been called to do in light of Christ. Now, here remains our aim. It's our faithful aim, right? No matter who you are, no matter if if you're a pastor or an elder in this church and you've been studying Ephesians for a long time, or this is your first time to church in a long time, and it's your first time opening up the book of Ephesians, our hope here at RCC is that each and every person would have a living encounter with the God of the universe like we've never had before. Now, just about six months ago, Oh my God, I can't believe I'm saying that. Six months, over six months ago, because of my setback, we had finished up part 17 of our Ephesians series titled, Our Spiritual Gifts and Talents Explained. And it was the last part of a three-part mini-series where we were looking at how to really unpack the spiritual gifts that God talks about in chapter four. You know, we learned that any spiritual conversation that we have about gifts and talents must start and end with a firm foundation and understanding that we are designed with a purpose and a calling to give to the mission of God. And we learn that any purpose or calling that we pursue in our lives that is not rooted in giving to Christ's mission is not a biblical purpose. That's not from God. Now, listen to me. This doesn't mean, right, we learn this. It doesn't mean that the things that God gives us and the gifts we have and the talents we have, that we can't enjoy them or benefit from them and use them. But it does mean that if our gifts are not used, that are given to us to then be given back to his mission, that we are falling short of their creation purpose. We learned that gifts are not given to be hoarded or primarily for our selfish gain to make a profit over. Our gifts are not given so that we become puffed up with conceit so that we can boast in and of ourselves, but our gifts were given radically for the purpose so that we would give them back to God's mission. We learned that our spiritual gifts are literally our works put into biblical motion. That's amazing, right? Our spiritual gifts are when we go out and we do good for Christ's kingdom, we're putting them into biblical motion. We learn that our primary responsibility, remember this, as sons and daughters and ambassadors of the kingdom is not primarily to solve earthly problems, right? Those are good things, but it's not our primary aim, but rather is to leverage our time and our gifts and our job positions and our opportunities and our families and our children, all these things to point people to the Savior that solves the great eternal problem. Because listen, remember, there is a far greater trauma permeating our lands. And it's a earth-shattering, sin-infested, joy-stealing, family-dividing, hope-sucking trauma that lasts beyond this life. And that's being separated from the God of the universe eternally. 
that's the ultimate trauma that me and you have been called to reconcile and be ambassadors to tell people that there's a solution. And that brings us to today. RCC, we made it after six months because of your faithful prayers and belief, because of God's intervention to my life. Here we are, six months later, getting ready to go into part 18, which is titled the Christ-centered undressing event of the ages. And today we're looking at segment A of that conversation titled taking off callousness. Now I'm going to be challenging you this morning. and I'm going to dare you this morning to learn more by the way of upping your game to be a better student learner for Christ. And the way that you can do that is by using those fill in the blank roadmaps that we hand out each and every week. Now, we just finished up, right, the Ephesians series review challenge, and we've been faithfully using those roadmaps. We want to continue that student learner posture. Now, if you don't have access to a roadmap, or perhaps you don't have a printer, I'm going to still challenge you to get a pen and a piece of paper out. Like, take some notes, follow along with the teaching, get involved in the sermon, and resolve to be more intentional. This is where the rubber meets the road in this series, you guys. This is where we're going to get really, really practical about what it means to be a Christian, and I don't want anyone to miss anything, because we're going to be uh, taking a deep dive, and we're going to talk about what it actually means to be in Christ. Now, even though I'm saved and I'm confident that I'm going to heaven, I believe that. I believe I'm saved and going to heaven. The last time I checked, I'm still breathing and I'm not in heaven yet, right? The last time I checked, neither are you. Therefore, since we are still alive and stuff is going on down here on earth, I think it would be so wise for us to figure out in scripture what we're supposed to be doing while we're here on earth. Don't you agree? Like, does God just want me and you paying some bills, going on a few trips and helping the poor, hanging out with family, having a couple of vacations and then retire and die? Is that our purpose? Or has God perhaps called me and called you to something bigger, more eternal, while doing all those good yet temporary things? And that's where the book of Ephesians, chapter 4, verse, um, excuse me, chapter 4 through 6, really leads us. It's where we, get to, we start to see the practicalities of our position and our mission in Christ become activated. Therefore, let's set the stage for this conversation to properly occur so that we can march faithfully through verses 17 through 32 as we start to wrap up chapter 4. So we're going to have our opening prayer in a little bit. We're going to discuss some of those verses in better detail today, and then we're going to finish up next week, okay? So let's just kind of lay out these verses real quick um, so that we can faithfully understand them. Here we go. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 17. This is the word of the Lord. Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their mind. Now, I wonder if Paul was thinking and looking at the Christians of that time and said to himself, you know what, you guys don't even look like Christians, nor are you acting like Christians, so I think I'm going to write down a letter to remind you of what it means to be like Christ, to be in Christ. So, so, so what about you? Do you think that Paul would have looked at your life, family and friends? Would he have looked at your life and thought the same of you? Like, have you ever acted like Christ, or not acted like Christ, rather, even though you are a Christian. Like, let's just tell the truth. Man, I've been a Christian for a long time, but there's times where I'm not acting like Christ, sometimes for moments. And unfortunately, there's been seasons where I've not acted like Christ, even though I'm in Christ. Therefore, Paul is saying to me, and he's saying to anyone who that's true for, don't walk in the vanity of your mind, because walking away from Jesus always begins. You're tracking with me? Walking away from Jesus always begins with the misstewardship of one's mind. And that will cause you to not act and be like Jesus. So Paul is trying to build out this contrast, you're tracking, between what we were like before Christ and who we are now like in Christ. Paul is saying, don't walk like the old school you and those old habits. Instead, focus on being the new school you. Put on these new activities that are more like Christ. So that should beg this very important question. So what was the old you and the old me like that Paul is talking about? Verse 18 and 19 explains that well. Let's look at that. 
This is the oldest. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God. Wow, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them. Due to their hardness of heart, they have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. Wow. So who are we? Or more importantly, so who were we, right? Without Christ, we were people who lacked understanding of God, and we were alienated from God. We were alienated from the life of God. We were lost in our ignorance, and we possessed hardened hearts. We were callous, slaves to sensuality, and greedy as people. So let me ask you a question. Do you remember when you used to be callous? In other words, do you remember when, it, when you could not as easily feel things? Like, do you remember when doing the wrong things used to not bother you at all like they do today? Like, do you remember how creative you used to be at finding creative ways to be more bad, to fulfill all these desires you have, keyword, secretly, things that no one else knew about, things that no one else knows about. Well, this is what Paul's saying. He's saying, that's who we used to be without Christ. That's the old school you. That's our old man. We, are, we were a people that were consumed by anything and everything that made us feel better. We were super greedy, filled with all sorts of impurities. I remember when the Lord actually was working so deeply on my carnality and my impurity and my sexuality and my sensuality like the great flood of impure thoughts that used to permeate my mind, being enticed by all sorts of stuff. My God, I remember that season. And so I remember the Lord just stopping me in my tracks, folks, one season and sitting me down and saying, Brandon, do you know how incredibly selfish you are? Now, you have to understand something, folks. I was well-known in my city of Stockton, California as a pretty nice guy growing up. You know, I did nice things. I got good grades in high school. I listened to my parents relatively well. I worked really hard on my job. I helped people all the time. That was my reputation. But the Lord said to me, no way, son. I'm not just interested in your outer deeds anymore. Instead, I'm even more interested in your inner man, Brandon. And my son, your inner man is corrupt. It was almost like Jesus was saying, when you're thinking those impure thoughts, Brandon, and you're doing these impure things, Brandon, you're sinning and you're being selfish and you're making it all about you. You're so greedy, my son. You're so selfish and you hurt people when you do that. And I want you to know that I see you. Even the nice things that you do, my son, I see your intention in them. And it's to build yourself up. It's to get affirmation that you're looking for. It's to satisfy yourself. And I'm done with that. I'm absolutely done with that. I remember that season, family and friends, like it was nothing. And man, that season with the Lord really broke me and it humbled me and it convicted me and it, and it really ultimately, it shaped me. And it made me say to myself, what in the world am I doing? Like, this isn't me, or unfortunately, this is me, but I don't want that to be true of my story anymore. And that process began to change me. You tracking? It spurred me on to want to be more like Christ, to want to serve him better, and to have a genuine desire to be different. I was sick of myself being so stupid in all these selfish tendencies. So as I desire to want to serve others and not just myself, and as that desire to want to be better grew in me, this was the beginning evidence of my new life and my new man coming into play. So Paul goes on to explain how this new spirit and new man thing that I experience, and maybe some of you experience, how this thing happens. Let's look at that in verse 20 and 21. But that is not the way you learned Christ, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as truth is in Jesus. Now, I remember the first time I had the privilege of going deeper, um, excuse me, growing deeper in a biblically faithful community, just like we have here at Redemption City Church. You know, where there's the Bible that's taught faithfully and in practical terms with relevant concepts and faithful application and purpose. And I remember thinking to myself when I was in this faithful church, 
no way. I'm finally starting to get it. I'm coming to this church. I'm hearing faithful preaching. I'm starting to get it. Now I have a, a, a smaller understanding, but it's growing to a larger understanding of who Jesus is. Man, I just want to sit down and I want to sit tight. It's time for me to start growing deeper. And that process began to change me forever. My mind began to change, and then my heart began to change, and most definitely my activities began to change. Let me say that again. My mind began to change, then my heart began to change, and then most definitely my activities. Folks, they started changing. And those are the three spheres of our being that God is so passionately after for his children. Our mind and our heart and our activity, our thought life. Our thoughts are not like God's thoughts, right? His ways are different than our ways, Isaiah, but he wants that to be renewed. Our heart is wicked above all things that we learn, but he wants to renew that. And then our activities, we want to do good. We want to be on Christ's mission. So who are we? We are a people called to step into our new life in Christ and begin to see and understand Jesus more relationally. As we do so, our mind and our heart and our life activity begin to be transformed. And this results, the results, are that we become more distinctly like Christ in every aspect of our lives as new creations. Like, can't you see? Jesus is the hope. He's what I need. He's what you need. He is who we are learning, Redemption City Church. It's not about learning about him or even just from him. It's about establishing a relationship with him that's with him that changes everything. Because then and only then do you begin to move out of your story into God's story and all the things of your former life and all the things of my former life begin passing away. They start falling off of you and that makes great room. You tracking with me? As the old stuff drops off of you, it makes great room for new things to come in your life that God has for you. Now watch Paul lay this out faithfully in verses 22 and 24. So here we go. To put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Okay, and right after this, Paul goes through this list of things that God desires for us to really get away from. Okay, you ready? Let's see that in the text now, verses 25 through 28. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Ready? Verse 26. Be angry. Do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Verse 28, let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Oh man, let's stop right here. I promise we're going to fillet open all this rich truth in these verses next week, but we got to just stop for a moment on this immediately. Do you see that section in the text right there that's underlined? Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Like, not only is Paul challenging the person to stop stealing, but he is also exhorting the person to move the needle to the complete opposite side of the spectrum, right? And that's to start giving. In other words, Paul is challenging us to stop stealing by means of hoarding our time and our talents and our spiritual gifts for selfish gain and laziness and to start serving and giving them all back to God's mission. Give, 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 give. And when you and I start doing that, folks. God begins to take off that old man, and you get to partner with God in the Christ-centered undressing event of the ages, namely putting your old life away, entering into your new life. And that is awesome, 
Isn't that awesome? You and I get to be a part of this created redemption story of reconciling all things. He counted us worthy. We get to become a new man and we get to dress ourselves with new realities. Like what does that mean to you that we get to partner with God? How humbling is that? Because then you get to have true and genuine joy of serving and not just consuming. And then all of a sudden, you start to have this passion to serve your church and this passion to be a part of God's kingdom. You start loving and relishing the opportunity to be the one that shows up early for church and you're the last one to leave church because you love making your church be all that it can be. And that's an awesome thing to have burning inside of you. And it's something that I want all people to experience. You start desiring to say yes to everything. Yes, Lord. Yes, Lord. Yes, Lord. Yes, Lord. I'll serve my church. Yes, Lord. I'll help the orphans. Yes, Lord. I'll give my tithe. Yes, Lord. I'll lay my life down. And it becomes a joyous, joyous occasion because you simply yet radically yet supernaturally become committed to do the things that need to be done for his kingdom, trusting radically that God is taking care of you. This is a sweet joy for the people of God. So Jesus says, no more, no more taking, no more greediness. Stop serving yourself and start serving others. Like what else Jesus says coming up here with Paul is going to be awesome. Let's look at what else he says in verse 29 through 33. Let no corrupt talk come out of your mouth. Uh Uh-oh but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. Verse 30, and do not grieve the Holy Spirit by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as Christ forgave you. Okay, now that's the full entree of the text that takes us through the end of chapter four. So today we're going to dive deep and fillet open about half of those verses, and then we'll do the second half of those verses next week because the scripture has a lot to say. Therefore, we have a lot to cover. Okay, let's get ready to dive deep into about half of these verses today. Join with me right now, and let's pray. Father, in Jesus' name, your word is powerful. It's so thorough. It's so good, and it's so balanced. It's so alive. And so, Father, in Jesus' name, we trust your word to have its way in our service. And all who are witnessing the display of your word being exhorted today in person or online, or perhaps they're downloading it later in the future, man, Jesus, I declare based upon scripture that your word is alive. It's timeless. It's transcendent. So in Jesus' name, may the student learners here, may the lovers of God here, may the wanderers and the wanderers and the seekers and everyone here, may we all be drawn to you. And may you provide something deep within our hearts so that we might be made known in each of our lives that you are real, that Jesus is real. So bless this sermon and my efforts today. Open the scroll, break the seal. Jesus, our worthy King and Lord, you are the only one worthy of our worship this morning, and we offer it to you. It's because of your beautiful name we pray. Amen. Okay. Let's, let, here we go. Let's, let's march. So Jesus gave out all these cool gifts, and we call them spiritual gifts. And he gave out all these cool positions, and we call them adopted children of God. But he doesn't stop there. Instead, Jesus continues on. He says, hey, if I'm going to give you all these amazing spiritual gifts, and if I'm going to give you this amazing position within my righteous family, I'm also going to require you to lay some things down. Therefore, if you want to receive what my Father has for you, this is what Jesus is saying, if you want to receive what my Father and I has for you, you first have to give up what you once held dear. Now, let's be honest. Jesus clearly does the lion's share of the lifting within this relationship with us, doesn't he? Like, remember, God does the work. Therefore, Jesus most definitely does the work. So what we get to lay down, not what we have to. You tracking with me? What we get to lay down 
doesn't compare at all to what Jesus is giving us in return. You tracking? Because Jesus is asking you and he's asking me to walk now in a way that essentially says, get in the game. You've been given these spiritual gifts. You've been given this righteous position in my family. Get in the game. He wants you and I to start now walking in purity. He wants you and I to start walking in unity. He wants you and I to start walking in harmony. And ultimately, he wants you and he wants me to start walking in victory. And Jesus inspires Paul in chapter 6 to really break that last one down. Namely, how do we stand and be victorious Christians in this life? Now, a lot of Christians say, oh, yeah, 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 that's the part I like. I want to stand in victory. I want to hear all about that part. I want to know how to be victorious. I want to be a winner. I want good things. Well, here's my answer, and I believe it's biblical. I want you to lean in with me. If you want to be victorious in your life, as a Christian, you first have to activate chapters four and chapter five of Ephesians in your life radically. You tracking with me? We gotta do that. You have to walk out all these things he's laying down in between these two chapters. They're gonna be infinitely critical. Just like building a house, folks, with a proper foundation, there's a wise biblical order to how we learn to stand as victorious Christians in our lives. There's a way we learn how to last as Christians. Now pay attention. When we forget to first sit and know that he's God, remember we talked about that in the Ephesians series, sit, then walk, then stand. When we forget to first sit and then just know that he's God, being fueled, what, what, what's our foundation, what's our hope? That we are fueled by the spout where the blessings pour out all throughout Ephesians chapters one through three. When we then skip the step of learning how to walk that we're gonna learn right now in Christ by refusing to participate in things that are unlike Christ, when we don't participate in the Christ-centered undressing event of the ages of taking off our old man and our old habits and then replacing it with our new man and our new habits as prescribed in chapter four and five, listen carefully, when we do that, we should not expect to stand and last as Christians. We shouldn't expect to end this life victorious. Instead, we can expect to be overwhelmed, lacking faith, regularly discouraged, and without hope. Because when you and me deviate from God's biblical order, your spiritual house will crumble every single time. So we are at the point of the series where we're going to be talking now about purity. This is where we're learning how to walk in purity. We've already talked at great length about being in unity, right? But now we really need to turn the corner for the next four or five sermons talking about a deeper concept of purity. So that should beg this question right now if you're leaning in and you're marching alongside with me. Why is purity so important? Here's why. Because without purity, you will not see God. Good night. Without purity, you won't see God. Let's see how Jesus lays that out in Matthew chapter 5, verse 8. This is the word of the Lord. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Wow. Therefore, can you see this? Without purity, you're going to see things very deceptively. It's going to be all fragmented and messed up with warped angles. So the question you have to ask yourself is, how important is your purity within your heart? How important is your purity? Because your answer to that question is going to reveal so much about where you're going in this walk and in this life with Jesus. Because without purity, the, the God of the Bible, Jesus, the God-man, he guarantees you, you will not see God. It's only blessed are those who are pure that will see God. Now, not only is purity important for you to see God, your purity is important for others because they won't see the God in you. Therefore, they may not see God at all. So many Christians find God through others. That's why we disciple people. They see something in you. They become attracted to something in you. They don't know it's the light of Christ. They don't know that you're the salt and light. And then they ultimately meet Jesus. Therefore, you following me? If you are not walking in purity, and you can't see God, you may stop others from seeing God too. But if they see you walking in character, 
and integrity and impurity in the workplace and at home and at the gym and at the store and wherever you go, they will have the opportunity to see the God of the universe. What power, what hope, what potential you and I have to be ambassadors of God. So I'm going to ask you again, how important is your purity to you? Because if it's not important to you, you're going to be in real big trouble. You're going to get smacked around by this life, and you're going to get taken out so fast by Satan and sin that's going to be creeping in all the time, deceptively trying to woo you, and you won't see the tidal wave coming. You won't see it. And let's be honest, sometimes people don't come back up for air when they get smacked down by the wave of sin. Sometimes we drown. You tracking with me? Sometimes we get killed by our sin and Satan and our lack of concern for our purity, and we don't get back up. Then we're out for the count, and we're cooked. I don't want that for anyone here. So we got to take our purity seriously. But listen, if purity is important to you, if your antenna is going up right now, you're like, yes, Pastor Brandon, this is so important. I know my purity is important, but I'm struggling, and I deeply care, but I don't know how to get out. I want you to know this is really, really, really good news because no matter how much you're struggling, no matter how many times you fall, you're still caring about it. You tracking with me? And as long as you are still caring, the door of your heart and mind remains open. Come on, come on. And as long as your heart and your mind remains open, there's room for the Holy Spirit to work within you. Hey, and as long as there's room for the Holy Spirit to work within you, God can get to work in you. That's good news. And if God can get to work within you, you can make it. Oh, you can make it big time. So that should beg this next question. What does purity actually mean? Like, what is this purity thing really about from a biblical God-centered perspective? Because I want this to be a, a priority in all of our lives. So I've put together this faithful definition, sitting down. You know, I love writing and thinking about the things of God. So here's the definition that I've put together for biblical purity. Biblical purity is the freedom from anything that separates you in the smallest iota from your relationship with God. It is the quality of being utterly faultless, uncompromised, and disenchanted by sin because sin no longer determines the choices or motivations of one's heart. Purity is the literal vehicle, means, and evidence that communicates your walk towards holiness. And though the term purity is often used today in relation to sexuality, purity is not limited to our sexuality. God desires that we live purely in all of our dealings with him, ourselves, and others. Therefore, purity should define our thought life, our words, and activity in such a way that maintains fellowship with the perfect and righteous God. Now, this reminds me of my friend's dad back when I was in high school who taught this in this important concept of purity so well. So I want to tell, tell you this story because it just really was something that etched in my life and it really made an impact. And so I wasn't there, but my, 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 one of my really good friends and his buddy were having a sleepover and, um, and they wanted to go to um, have this, um, this movie at the theater downtown in Stockton. And they were like, really wanted to see it. It was PG-13. And so my friend gets all the reviews out, the little Christ, uh, Christian reviews, and he presents it, he prints it out, he shows his dad and he's like dad i really want to see this movie it's only pg-13 you know i'm 16 my friend's 16 there's only a little bit of impure things in there but it's really good dad i, I checked it all out i looked at everything now my friend's dad is as a, a devout christ-centered man he takes purity seriously and so after looking at it he ultimately says to my friend i'm sorry son you can't go to the movies. And my friend was super bummed out. He told me he was really bummed out. He went back up the stairs with his friend. They kind of just were talking, sitting, super bored and super discouraged. Now my friend's dad, feeling bad because he really wanted his son to have a good evening, just said, how can I turn this night around for my son? And so he had a great idea. He said, you know what? I'm gonna get my son's favorite dessert and I'm gonna get one of his favorite desserts for his friend too. So um, my friend's dad leaves, he comes back and he gets something from the restaurant BJ's, if you've been there, and it's called a pizookie. A pizookie is this, oh, delicious cookie. It's warm and it's, it's just the bomb. It's from heaven. And um, 
has ice cream on top of it. So he comes home and on my friend's dad adds one little ingredient to it. You ready for this? A pinch of dog poop from my buddy, my buddy's dog in the backyard. His name was Homer, okay? And so he puts a little pinch of poop on the pizuki, on both of the cookies, and then he goes upstairs, he knocks on the door, and he asks my friend, he goes, hey, he says, hey, I got something for you. And, and my friend's like, what, dad? He's like, I got you your favorite dessert from BJ's. I got you some pizukis. My friend freaked out. He, he ran down the stairs. He went to the table. My, you know, his friend's with him. He's like, Dad, where's the bazooki at? Where's it at? I hope, you know, I hope you're not lying. And, my, and then my friend's dad was like, oh, I'm not lying. I just want you to know something, though. You ready? Um, I added one little ingredient to it to make it even better. And my, friend, and my friend's like, okay, Dad, whatever. Like, what did you do? What did you do? And my, my friend's dad ultimately says, well, I've added just a pinch of Homer's dog poop. <laughs> and my friend goes, yeah, yeah, right, Dad, kind of laughing it off. You, you, you definitely didn't do that. And then the dad goes, come here, come smell it. And so my friend puts his nose to the pizuki and can smell dog poop. And he's like, Dad, ew, that's, that's gross. I don't want anything to do with that. And then my friend's dad says this, son, like 95% of it is everything that you love. It's just a little bit of dog poop. And then my friend goes, Dad, I don't care how much of it I like. If there's any dog poop on it, I don't want nothing to do with it. And then my friend's dad leans in and he goes, Son, and that's why you can't go to that movie. I don't care if 95% of this movie is good. That 5% corrupts it all. It'll take you out. And I don't want that for you. And my friend was telling me this, and he said, I just get it now. I get why my dad's so hard on me, why he fights so aggressively for my purity. All it takes is 1% to corrupt me. And so being a good dad, he says, now, son, of course I wasn't going to leave you hanging like that. And he opens the refrigerator, and he has two more pizookis for my friend to eat with his friend. And they had a good night. They ate it, and they learned a great lesson on how important we should take our purity. Now, I don't know about you, but how many of us want and need our spiritual father on high to remind us of that perspective within our lives, right? Because we all need to have that level of seriousness and intensity and appreciation for our purity. You know why? It's for two reasons. So that we can see God for ourselves. That's super important. And so that others can see God in us. Those are why. That's why we got to take our purity so important. We want to see God. If we don't see God, we don't know God. If we don't know God, we have no relationship with God. If we have no relationship with God, we have no hope. And others can have no hope. So our purity has to be important. This leads to an important takeaway. Here it is. Bible-believing, Christ-exalting Christians need to be marked by purity because Scripture promises that we will be able to see God for ourselves. What a gift. Seeing God is the beginning of our relationship with him. And if this was not important enough, our purity enables others to see Christ in us, positioning them with the amazing opportunity of having their own personal encounter with the only one who can save them. Finally, spending our life seeing and glorifying God, helping others to see and glorify God, is the epicenter of our purpose. Therefore, our purity becomes quintessential to our journey towards eternity in Christ. Okay, therefore, how do we begin to take wise steps towards walking in this type of seriousness about our purity that the Lord is looking for us to embody within our lives. Well, first, Paul points out some of the traps that are going to get in our way from even starting the journey. This is how good the word is. And I love how Paul lays this out and he does this. He answers the question first by telling us what once used to get in our way. I think that's important. I think we should look at that. So let me put verses 17 and 18 back up for you again. Here we go. Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. In the futility of their minds, they are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardness of heart. Okay, listen, lean in. Even though we knew that there is a God, we did not worship him. Even though we knew there's God, we didn't worship him. You tracking? Just think about this in your, in your own life. You know there's a God. I know there's a God. But that doesn't always mean 
that we trust him. Just because we know that God's real doesn't mean that we always worship him. Just because we know God is real doesn't mean that we always obey him, right? We think we know and often can do better for ourselves without God, don't we? That's what Paul means when he says we were walking in the futility and the, I'm going to say, the stupidity of our minds. We're basically walking around being like, oh, look at the butterflies and oh, look at this. And I want to make a bunch of money and money comes from trees, but that means everything to me. Oh, I think I come from monkeys. Like what's going on? The vanity of our thinking as a, as a mankind, as humans, the things that we believe. But, as, but if we as Bible-believing, Christ-exalting Christians wake up to the awe and the wonder that says, wow, I am created in the image of God. My sins have been forgiven. His spirit is living literally within me, and I have all these gifts to do an amazing mission with an amazing purpose on my life. When we believe that and we think like that and we act like that, then we are engaging in the opposite of futile thinking. This is purpose-driven biblical thinking, and that is good news. Because you see, once we start to worship him in this way, we start to learn him. And that's what it tells us in verse 20. But before we dive any more deeply in that, I want to look at verse 19 once more, because I really want us to see what Paul's saying. Here's verse 19. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. Wow, this could be any one of us. Becoming callous is a real dangerous reality. It's really bad, and it's really dangerous. In another translation of Scripture, it says, we became past filling, meaning past having the ability to feel guilty, past the feeling of being able to feel wrong or desiring to even be right with God. That's scary. Losing the actual desire to be right with God. You know, when I first got hurt in my injury, I had to take a prescription medication called Vicodin. You may have heard of it. And Vicodin interacts um, chemically with your pain receptors to take pain away. And so when I started taking this medication, I was able to move around and do more things that I couldn't do because the medication was removing my ability to feel pain. But here's the thing. Something was wrong. The doctor knew something was wrong. My therapist knew something was wrong. And so once I got off the Vicodin, oh my goodness, I was in excruciating, backbending, crawled up in my bed type of pain. You want to know why? Because that Vicodin medication had been masking my true condition and my true reality the whole time. Can't you see? Those pain receptors in my body are a gift from God. They tell me that something's going wrong. It's alerting me that something is wrong and I need to go attend to it. When your foot hurts, you go to a foot doctor. When your gums hurt, you see a dentist. When your head hurts, you see a neurologist. You tracking with me? God gives us these types of pain as an alert system that something has gone wrong. You see, that's the problem with sin. When sin is both active and uncorrected, it eventually will lead you astray and will dampen your spiritual pain receptors. It begins to masquerade the true sickness that is going on with inside of you, and you stop feeling the effects of your sickness of sin. What was once obvious to you as dead wrong in your own heart will eventually, if you keep letting it go unchecked, and you keep taking these proverbial medications of sin— If you keep letting this happen, it's going to lead you to do some really crazy, wacky, dangerous things that you never thought you would do, and you won't feel a thing about it. Like, track with me, if I take a 500-pound weight and I smash it on the foot of a dead person, that dead person is still dead, aren't they? They're dead. (laughs) They're not going to move. They're not going to say, ouch. They don't mind the 500-pound weight at all because they are totally and utterly past filling it, they're dead. But if I take that same 500 pound weight and I smash it down hard on Pastor Jack's foot, what do you think he's gonna do? Pastor Jack's gonna be squirming and squilling and and screaming, he's gonna be upset, and what is he gonna do? He's gonna do every single thing he can do to move out of the way, isn't he? He's gonna wanna get that weight off as soon as possible. Why? Because Pastor Jack knows it's hurting his foot and he can feel that it's hurting his foot. He's not past feeling. He's not dead. Therefore, he's going to want to get away from that weight off of his foot 
as soon as possible. And so it is for you and for me when we are so radically alive in Christ. We have these God-given feelings and we are not to be marked as a people by callousness. Don't drug yourself out in sin, folks. You are supposed to know when you're not doing the right thing. It's just time to hear that. You as a Christian are supposed to know when you're not doing the right thing and when you're not at the right place. You tracking? That ability is a good and right and true gift from the God of the universe that you don't ever, ever, ever want to lose. But pay attention. You will absolutely lose your ability to fail if you keep sinning and running away from the Lord. I'm going to say that again. You will absolutely lose the ability to fail if you keep running and sinning away from the Lord. Now, did you know that the world today doesn't feel sin or carnality anymore? Like, you know that feeling when you're at the movies and you know something on the screen is not right and you kind of feel uh, awkward and embarrassed and you kind of turn away, you put your, your eyes down and you could just feel it in your gut that you're supposed to look away? Did you know that the world without Christ, they don't, they don't feel those things anymore. They don't turn away in, in, from those movies. Their eyes don't feel anything when they're in the theater. So here's my question. Do you want to join the world and lose your ability to feel like that? Do you want to lose your ability to feel like that? Because hear me out. I know it doesn't feel good to struggle all the time. And some of you have been wrestling and struggling for a really long time and you're really exhausted. Hey, 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 look at me. Look at me right now. I hate struggling with my sin too. I hate it. I hate it. I hate it. It sucks. But listen to me. The fact that you can still struggle with sin, it's a good thing. It's a gift from God because it indicates that you're not past feeling guilt and godly conviction. That means you are still alive in Christ. You're not dead. This means that you're most likely saved. You're an adopted child of God and you have a problem with things that are not like your father. That means you are destined to be more than a conqueror, folks. The Bible promises in the end that you're going to win and that you're going to stand and that you will end your life with all your pain and all the things that were taken from you, the abuse you went through, the struggles, the late nights, the times where you weeped and cried and thought you couldn't make it. The Bible promises that you're going to end victorious in Jesus. That's the guarantee and that is really, really good news. So if you're a man specifically sitting here today, I want you to lean in with me. If you're struggling with your sin, particularly with sexual purity in any way, and you're just defeated and you're exhausted and you say, God, I, I don't know what to do. I keep failing. I keep messing up. God, I need your help. Listen, the fact that you are struggling means you have every single reason to stay in the game. You, you, you make a fist right now in Jesus' name and you stay in the game. Listen to me. That struggle, young man, that struggle, older man, women, whoever you are, it means and it is indicative of the fact that you are so radically alive in Christ. That's why you're struggling because the new man in you is saying, no, no, no. And guess what? In Jesus' name, Christ is going to win this battle. And you're going to be set so free. So hang in there. You keep fighting. Hey, take a moment. You thank God for your struggle right now. You do it. You push past. Thank God. Say, thank God I'm still in the game. Thank God that I'm feeling things. Thank God I'm not past feeling. Thank God that you're not callous. So who are we? We are a people called to participate in the Christ-centered undressing event of the ages by taking off the old man so that we can avoid growing callous. For as we take off the old man, we move away from the medicating effects of sin that hinder our ability to fill. Furthermore, we are to praise Christ for the ability to struggle with our sin because this is indicative that we are so alive in Christ. The work simply isn't done yet. Okay, so, so here's the question. How do we stay so sensitive and fully filling? Like how do we avoid becoming callous? Let's look deeper now at verse 20. Let's do that. But that is not the way you learned 
Christ. Put your name in there. That is not the way Brandon learned Christ. Put your name there. Like, can't you see? You are not past filling when you have learned Christ because that means you actually know him. Now, I want to make a very important distinction here. It doesn't say that you learned about Christ. You tracking with me? It doesn't even say that you've learned from Christ. Like, both of those are good. We want to learn from him. We want to learn about him. But that's not what the text is saying. Look at it. It says, it says, when you have learned Christ, meaning when you have entered into a right and righteous relationship with him, Okay, news alert. Did you know that the whole world knows about Christ? Like, think about December 25th, Christmas, right? Everybody knows Christ. So the world's heard of him, but that doesn't mean the world knows them personally for themselves. So if you want to stay so sensitive and you don't want to lose your ability to fill, it's not going to necessarily come from knowing about Christ. And it's also not going to primarily come from you hearing other people's stories about Christ. Did you hear what I said on that one? Other people's faith is not going to cut it. You can't keep living off of your friends and your grandmas and your uncles and your mommy and daddy's faith. It's not going to cut it. What is going to keep you so sensitive and overcoming in your struggles and keeping your ability to fill, what's going to keep you engaged and encouraged in your relationship with Christ is not going to come from knowing more rules. It's not going to come by doing more spiritual rituals. It's going to come down to you radically knowing God personally for yourself, period. You have to learn Christ and talk to Christ and pray to Christ and cry with Christ and rejoice with Christ and ultimately dwell in Christ. Just look at this next verse, verse 21. Assuming, right, right? It says, but this is not the way you learned Christ, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. Can you see this intimacy and connection and relationship part that Paul is trying to get us to lean into? Do you see this? That's why we take communion here at RCC. Because when we perform our sacrament where we eat the symbolic representation of the wine and the bread that represents God's broken body and his blood that was shed, that represents Jesus' body that was broken and his blood. This is really intimate. This is incredibly powerful. Powerful. So if you're not intimate with Jesus right now and you're not spending powerful, is the key word, powerful time with them, you're going to start feeling callous. You're going to lose your ability to fill if you don't have intimate and powerful experiences with God. Therefore, the difference between us as Bible-believing, Christ-exalting Christians and the world, it isn't our knowledge of God. It isn't our strength. It's, not, it's our intimacy that separates us. You're tracking? There's people that are stronger than us. Come on. There's people that don't have God that are stronger than us. They can endure more than us. There's people that know way more about Christ than us. Yes, there are. There are secular historians that can make me look really, really ignorant. But what they can never compete with is our intimate relationship and the power of that in Christ. This leads to our next takeaway. We avoid becoming callous, and we avoid losing our capacity to feel the effects of sin by entering into a personal and intimate and sensitive relationship with Christ. The more we talk to him and pray to him and cry out to him, the more our hearts are softened and other people's stories and other people's faith simply won't cut it for us anymore. Let's look at the next verse in verse 22. Okay, so to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires. So I'm going to say it for you real quick. But that is not the way you learn Christ, assuming you have heard about him and were taught in him as truth in Jesus to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt and is corrupt through deceitful desires. Man, I love, love, love this truth. We have to step radically into this Christ-centered undressing event of the ages by taking off our old man and our old ways and our old activities, our old desires and our old mentalities, our old ways, and put them away in the grave 
ferociously away in the grave. In other words, you have to begin changing your activities, folks, because of your new identity in Christ. You have to begin changing your activities because of your new identity. So let me tell you something that you unfortunately may not have heard about in the Christian life and the walk of faith. And if you've been walking with the Lord for some time and you haven't heard this before, I'm really, really sorry about that because you really should have heard this a long time ago on your journey in church. Okay, you ready? Because this is everything. This is big. This may want to be the biggest things I've shared in a sermon here at our church. Lean in. Did you know that you have to undress yourself of the old man and say no on a daily basis? Like, did you know that even when you are sitting and enjoying the good gifts of God that he's giving you, that old man is going to start knocking on the door, trying to join in on the party, and you're going to have to continuously and constantly say, no, 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 you're not invited. Did you know that? Because so many immature believers who were not discipled faithfully into right biblical thinking get overwhelmed constantly as they try to grow in their relationship with Jesus because nobody ever told them that message. They think that once they give their life to Christ and they have their big aha moment and they have their big emotional experience, they're safe, it's over, life is going to be easy, I'm going to be a victor now, it's all over. But that is not true. That is not what the Bible communicates. That is not biblical. And if you didn't learn this lesson, learn it now. If you don't correct this thinking, it's going to cost you a lot of pain later on in life with faulty expectations and unmet desires in your steps with Jesus that God never promised you. He never said because you gave your life to Christ that all your problems go away. He never said because you gave your life to Christ that all your, all, all your struggles evaporate. That's not the promise. You gotta hold this intention. You gotta learn this lesson or you're gonna struggle. This is super, super important. So I want you to know today that you have to constantly and continuously say, you're not invited when the old school you tries to come back around because the old man is not permanently or fully going anywhere while you are still here on earth. Just because you're struggling doesn't mean you're not growing. Let me say this to you again. As long as you are breathing on this earth, that old man is not going away fully. But just because he doesn't go away and you have a struggle, it doesn't mean you're not growing. For the rest of your life, you're going to have to deny the old man and tell him to go away. And he's going to keep knocking on the door. And it's going to annoy you. It's going to frustrate you. You're going to think, man, leave me alone. And pay attention. you got to stick in the game. And you got to keep saying no every time he knocks on the door. You know why? Because the biggest person you have to watch out for on this planet is not Satan, It's not burglars or robbers or stealers or abusers or anybody else. It's you. Your old man is the most dangerous person in your life. I have to watch out for Brandon Keith Rochelle more than anybody else. He is most definitely the most dangerous person in the game for me. And let me tell you the truth, brothers and sisters. You are radically the most dangerous person in the game for you no one else. That's why you and I have to lean in to this Christ-centered undressing event of taking off the old man. But so many people say in the world, oh, just follow your heart. Do whatever you feel. Whatever you feel, bro. (laughs) No, 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 no. Like, are you crazy? Are you kidding me? Do whatever you feel. Do whatever I feel. Listen, if I did everything that I feel and I participate in everything that I want, I'd be in prison period. You cannot follow your feelings. Do not follow your heart. Your heart is deceitful above all things. Jeremiah chapter 17 verse 9 says, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Therefore, Jeremiah is warning us that we have to engage, um, we have to engage with our heart and say, no, oftentimes, no heart, you're wrong. We need to do that often. Day after day, Put off the old man and get to know Jesus more. Focus on the intimacy with Christ. That's why Proverbs 3 verses 5 through 7 says this. Let's put that up for you. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. 
In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will make straight your paths. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. Like, can't you see? We can't follow nor trust our hearts fully. Instead, we need to trust God with our heart by focusing radically on what he says. Because our understanding without Christ is completely warped and it's all jacked up. That's exactly how you go about losing your feelings and becoming callous. Namely, being wise in your own eyes and your arrogance leading you into deeper and deeper sin. Just look at verse 22 in Ephesians that we're learning. Here we go. Throw off your old sinful nature and your former way of life, which is corrupted. It's corrupted by lust and deception. Pay attention. There is nothing more deceitful and filled with deception than lust. Lust says, I want, ooh, I want. And then it grows into, mm, I need it. And then it eventually says, I have to have it. I want, I need, I have to have. And if you're not careful, you will become a slave to that process. And then you will have to obey it. But here's the thing. When you give into lust demands and then you grab it, just when you think it's going to fulfill you and give you everything that you think you want, it won't. Trust me, it won't. You will quickly see that you have been duped and deceived because lust, all forms of it, lust of the eyes, lust of the pride of life, lust of the flesh, all of it will be like a scorching fire. And like all fires, when you keep feeding them, are going to get bigger and bigger. And your lust is going to grow bigger and bigger and deeper and deeper. And you're going to lose complete control and you will not be able to get yourself out of it. So when you feed lust and you say, oh man, if I could just, mm, if I could just get with her, or if I could just have sex with that guy, or if I could just get more from this man, if I could just get a little bit more attention from my friends, if I could just have one more possession, if I could just eat a little bit more of his food, whatever this lust is, the, the Bible promises if you keep wanting it and then needing it and then having to have it, it will destroy you. It will develop like a fire within you and it will take you beyond and further than you ever want it to go. You will be filled with sin and that you will be past filling and you will be callous. Therefore, the only way to conquer lust is not by feeding it, most definitely. It's not by playing around and taming it or playing around with it. Instead, the only way to conquer lust, lean in, you ready? The only way you're gonna conquer lust is to starve it. You have to absolutely starve it out. You have to genuinely repent and genuinely desire to change. And then you got to genuinely turn away. You got to flee. Do not feed the fire of lust anymore. Period. Because if you starve it out long enough, that fire of lust will weaken and you will be able to subdue it in Jesus' name. You will no longer be deceived because you would have undressed yourself more and more of, of those old tendencies and that old man and that old way of thinking. And you will begin to see what Christ says. And you will see the beauty and the majesty and the wonder of his way. And it will be sweet like honeycomb to your soul. Okay, let's begin to land the plane this way. So who are we? We are a people called to be ferocious about cha changing our activity in light of our new identity. Daily, the old man will knock on the door and daily we have to resolve to undress ourselves of him. We must choose to trust Jesus above our own understanding and lust of the eyes, pride of life and flesh. Therefore, to avoid being duped and deceived by this lust, we must completely starve it out with genuine repentance and a desire to change. We have to activate that no to the flesh. No, no, no more. All right, let's prepare to have a sobering yet hopeful ending to what we're learning today. You see, everything that we've learned today within Ephesians chapter 4, verses 17 through 22, everything within these six verses is so important and is so valuable and is so critical for you to take seriously because this is a stern warning from Paul. Therefore, it is a stern warning from God, you know, the God of the universe, that we have a part to play now in our relationship with him. This notion that God does the work and our part is to sit passively and idly by and do absolutely nothing, 
no Christian activity, that's not biblical. A huge way to guard against that type of mentality is by the stewardship of our minds. Our minds are the portal and the gateway to everything, folks. Both good and evil, holy and and unholy, pure and impure, the mind is the gateway. That's why Paul says in Romans chapter, uh, chapter 12, verse 2, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed how? How? By the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what the will of God is, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Listen, there is no other way around that text, folks. The verdict has been set by the God of the universe. Guard your mind. Guard your mind. Guard your mind because it's the pathway and it's the portal to your heart. Because the failure to do that is going to have devastating consequences in your life with God, in your relationship with yourself, and in your relationship with others. And one of the first casualties will be that you start to lose your ability to fill and you will grow callous towards God. And the things that he says are important, you'll start losing that. And the second casualty of this war will be the tsunami of sin that begins to overtake your life and ravage your life. And you won't even know what's happening because you'll be past filling. I wish I could spend more time talking right now about the renewal of your mind, Romans 12, because it is so powerful to understand the power of your thought life, but we're running out of time. Therefore, let's end with this hope-filled promise of God. Because Paul didn't come into the Ephesians to tear them down and make them feel bad, nor did he intend to leave a letter to us today to beat us down. Our Father in heaven inspired him to give us, like the Ephesians, this important tension this important contrast so to make it plain so we can avoid doing the wrong things. Everything he says to point us is in verse 20, namely to spend and to wring our lives out participating in this event of putting away the old man. It's not about feeling shame. It's about resolving to put the old man away daily, day after day. Now remember, there are still 10 more verses for us to march through, and we're going to march through all of those next 10 verses next week as we wrap up chapter 4. Paul is not done providing important instructions for us to get in the game about regarding how we participate in this undressing of the old man. We have more to learn. So next week is going to get even more practical, and it's going to be equally as important. It's, it's going to get really practical, actually, and it's going to be so special and so important. So make sure you show up for that. We will all walk away from chapter 4 in Christ by faith with a lot of work to do. But the good news is this. We have access to the God of the universe. We have access to Jesus who died on the cross, went down in the grave, and rose in three days. And that is no small thing, folks. That's actually everything. That's the gospel. That's our hope. That's what we believe. And because he's already done all the heavy lifting, because Jesus has done the heavy lifting, we can have supreme confidence that he will supply every single thing that we need to finish our race well as victorious Christians in Christ. Believe that and ask the Holy Spirit to give you an extra measure of confidence wherever you have doubt. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you're so good to us and we are so undeserved of this intimate and powerful relationship that you've established. But in your son, because of his blood that was shed, it's been done and it's finished. Therefore, God, I pray that we would all lean into this Christ-centered undressing event of saying no to our old ways and mentalities and practices and hopes, and that you would replace all this new space and this room that we have in our hearts and in our souls and our lives for new activities, new hopes, new desires, new interests, God, that reflect you and bring glory to your name. Everywhere where there's any child of God, or someone who's wandering away from you that's struggling to believe this message, Holy Spirit, awaken their soul and invigorate them to see you for who you are. It's in your beautiful name that we pray. Amen.